0: Before we jump into today's episode, let's give a shout out to our sponsor, Jane, a clinic management software and EMR. Whether you're just starting to do your research or you've been contemplating switching your software for a while now, the Jane team understands that the process can feel intimidating. That's why their goal is to provide you with all the onboarding resources you need to make the switch as soon as possible. Jane offers a personalized call to set up your account, a free data import, and a variety of online resources to get you up and running quickly. And if you ever need a helping hand along the way you'll have access to unlimited phone, email, and chat support included in your Jane subscription. If you're interested in learning more, book a one-on-one demo at Jane.app/switch. And if you decide to make the switch, don't forget to use the code HEAL1MO. That's HEAL1MO at sign up to receive a one-month grace period on your new Jane account.
1: Hello, I'm Cal Cates. Welcome and- to Interdisciplinary. Oh, I totally cut you off, Kathy. Yeah. I'm the worst host ever.
2: <laughs> I think we should keep this in. And I'm totally. Kathy Ryan.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Let's try it again. Welcome to Interdisciplinary. I'm Cal Cates.
2: And I'm Kathy Ryan.
1: <laughs> and this is Heal Well's podcast about people who take care of people and animals, and all the places and perspectives that lift us up. We love science, we love meaningful dissent, and we love to support our fellow humans in making our world a place that is just, equitable, and loving beyond our own imagining. Thanks for joining us for another rousing conversation with a smart, compassionate human who, um, just before we got on, we were also saying maybe we should say nerdy. We should just add nerdy to the descriptor. of like. I don't think we've had anybody on our show yet who wouldn't proudly identify as nerdy, so we might just have to add that. Um, we, uh, had so much fun with our season three review contest and the amazing, uh, private convo that we got to have with our, uh, review writer winner that we're going to extend it into season four. So, um, if you write a review and we read it on the air, you will get to choose either a 30 minute conversation with Cal Cates and Kathy Ryan about a topic of your choosing an interdisciplinary mug, a t-shirt, or a conversation with Janet Penny and Rebecca Sturgeon, the authors of Oncology Massage and Integrative ah, Care Perspective Curses. I had it memorized, but now it's gone. Approach. That's it. That's it. Approach. It's a good book. They're amazing people. It's a, an incredible gift to spend 30 minutes hanging out, nerding out about oncology massage. So write us a review, tell your friends, your pets, whoever that uh, you listen and that they should listen to and uh, like us and share us and link and all the things. Now the part that you have been waiting for, this week's pun. Are you guys ready? Oh, yeah. I was doing a little research on uh, sort of how things like time and stuff were created. And it uh, turns out the scientists got bored watching the Earth turn. So after 24 hours, they just called it a day.
2: <laughs> but I'm oh.
1: <laughs> That's right. I love that Rebecca has figured out how to put in a little rim shot. So um, it's good nice. stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like it should actually just be clattering dishes in the background or something. (laughs) So, Kathy, what should we know about your world or British Columbia or, I don't know, bears?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, we we do have them. Um, I like to see them from a distance. Yeah. They're they're beautiful things that deserve a lot of respect.
1: Yeah, a colleague of ours from um, Alaska said that... um, She she gave us a tip that I will never forget and I hope I never have to use. But she said, if it's brown, get down. If it's black, fight back. I don't know that I would really know the difference between a black bear and a brown bear if it like was charging at me. But the idea that I should just lie down and let it maul me seems sort of counterintuitive. But the idea that I could actually fight a bear seems similarly ludicrous. So, I mean, thank you, Jamie Elswick, for that tip. And also, let's just hope that that's not anything we ever have to try out.
2: Exactly, um, <laughs> and they're not always brown. The grizzlies' their coat very, very has quite a vast variation, so they can be like a chocolate color to a blonde color.
1: Uh, well, so but they're not closer to black, so you might know. But if it's blonde, I don't know. We got to come up with like a rhyme for blonde.
2: Well, in, and then here in BC we have a very special type of black bear called the Kermode, or Spirit Bear, which has uh, it's not a albino, but it has almost a white coat. Very, oh, very, very I don't know, special what and think. sacred.
1: If one of those comes, I mean, I guess you just turn your pants brown, probably. That's what I would do. My
2: pants would definitely be brown.
1: (laughs) It feels like an odd but not completely clunky segue uh, to talk with our guest today. (laughs) We have Dr. Emily Clore with us, veterinarian extraordinaire, former massage therapist, and giant nerd bag. Welcome to the show,
3: Emily (laughs) Clore. Thank you very much. It does feel like a completely apt segue. I I definitely deal in a fair amount of scatological humor. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I do how you. Feel.
3: <laughs> we so definitely deal with our share. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, I bet. I mean, is there a day that goes by as a veterinarian where you don't interact somehow with poop that didn't come from you?
3: No. Mm-mm. No. Yeah. Definitely not. I, even if it's just, uh, hey, can someone come pick up this turd?
1: But Oh, about it. totally. Yeah. Wow. And do you ever, you know, take your work home,
3: so to speak? Uh, no, thankfully, I have never. But there are always stories that technicians will tell. Veterinary oh. nurses will sometimes find them a little gift in their pocket when they were holding a dog. Oh, man. Yeah, it's not, <laughs> wow. not a good day. Not a good day.
1: So our listeners might be wondering why we've invited a veterinarian to join us today. Um, and not to imply that you're just any veterinarian, uh, but we, there's so many questions, uh, and experiences that you have as a veterinarian that, uh, can really benefit us as people who care for humans. And I know Kathy and I both have some questions just right off the bat, but give us like the lowdown on where do you work? What kind of animals do you see? why did you become a vet? like Why do you care about this?
3: Um, the, why'd you become a vet question is, is what I call my little girl fireman dream. Um, I grew up in Kentucky, uh, and Georgia surrounded by animals. All my siblings are much older than me. So my animals were my de facto siblings until everybody came home from college. Um, so it was, it was definitely something I was interested in and I've always loved science. Um, I was a big fan of Ranger Rick as a child, loved that every time the Ranger Rick magazine arrived at the door, it was a big day. Um, so I've always loved animals, I've always loved science, and I always love knowing things about them that knew, but nobody else knew. I kind of like that uh tiny expert sort of notion. <laughs> nice. uh, obviously my parents were too indulgent. But the um the 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 how is kind of the weird part. Like this is my second career. I graduated from college at the height of the dot-com boom and had majored in essentially industrial psychology and nothing about the hard sciences. In fact, I pretty much hated all of my science classes in college. I wasn't mature enough to, to study that for them properly and take them seriously and so on. And I had, um, I had other goals like making money. And then when by the time I was 25, I was like, so I'm making money, but I'm still not enjoying this. I'm still not happy. So I, um, it was actually uh, a, a former uh, significant other who said to me, you keep talking about it. Why don't you just shut up and go to vet school? And I was like, whatever you're crazy. <laughs> and then, and, uh, 10 years later, I finally graduated from vet school. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, but and I, that's um, the, that's the
1: typical trajectory, right? Like vet school is a, like it is, it is more school than med school in some cases.
3: Um, well it was more school for me because I didn't major in a hard science as an undergrad and, um, um I had to go back and take some of the classes that I had, not taken seriously in college. Um, <laughs> I had to take them again as an adult while working and going to school at night, which oh, sucks big time. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it, it, it took me five years of classes and work experience and um, so on to get into vet school. Once I got in, it took me another four years plus a year of internship to finish.
1: Wow. So yeah, 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> a little while. And, and now you're a vet
3: and it's, that's right. Um, most of the time it is amazing. Um, I love what I do and I like who I work with, which is a huge piece of the puzzle because I spend very long days there. Um, it's roughly, I mean, it's almost always a 10 to 12 hour day and a a full-time schedule for vets is four days a week. So I work in a companion animal hospital. I see dogs and cats only in San Diego. Um, and, uh, I work with a team of doctors and, um, technical staff who are outstanding. (laughs) And by far the hardest thing that we have had to deal with in the last 18 months is the on again, off again, you're coming in the clinic with your pet or no, you're not. Um, so now we are doing something where we have people coming into the clinic. We try to limit it to one person per pet, but sometimes it needs to be two. Um, and all the staff are required to wear masks and some of the people will wear them. Some won't. We leave it up to them. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's been a really weird year. And, um, I heard a statistic the other day that 12 million households got pets during the last 18 months. Wow. So yeah, we are, uh, no wonder we're so busy. I mean, yeah.
1: Now, so when you th- I mean, so uh, as a person who loves animals, I'm both delighted and horrified that all kinds of people who have never had animals before have decided that they need an animal. Um so I'm curious about your perspective about that and I'm also wondering cuz I think when we had talked a little while ago you were talking about how busy you guys were and I'm wondering like is it because people are home and actually seeing that their pets are having problems is it because you have all these new pet owners who are like oh my gosh my dog's ear like tipped over and now I should go to the vet
3: or like what explains the the deluge? Um, I don't know that anybody knows the answer to that question. I think it's a little a column A and a little a column B. I mean, I think it's it's probably a lot of both. Certainly, in the early days, we were like, "Oh yeah, this is clearly something somebody just wouldn't have noticed if they'd been going to work every day." Um, but probably in the last six to eight months, it's been new pet owners. Um, either first time or new to them, or um, or people who are watching too closely. I mean, there is some of that. It's like, okay, this is all completely normal, and we're so glad that you came in, find out that everything was okay, and your pet's healthy. That's great. Uh, but there's also a lot of like, okay, you can't call seven times and ask the same question. We're all going to go absolutely crazy. Oh. so there's um, it's a it's a mixed bag. We have really good, uh, really good clients. We have amazing clients in many cases, and we have lots of new clients who are learning stuff that they didn't know that their animal needed. Like I should be brushing my dog's teeth every day. Um, yeah. that In a perfect world, that would be great. Full disclosure. I don't do that. I mean, there's no way. Gosh. I mean, I
1: know I'm supposed to do that, but I, I think I've brushed my dog's teeth. Like I could count on one hand probably the number of times that I've done that. I've paid a billion dollars to have someone else clean my dog's teeth multiple times.
3: Yes. yes, yeah. That is unfortunately a reality. Yeah. Yeah. So talk to us about, uh, I mean, I have so
1: many questions, but like when, I mean, the assumption of course, in this question is that humans are good at reporting about their pain, even though they have mouths and they can talk, but like, how do you care for a, a being that can't clearly express to you? what is happening with them? And, or do you develop a language that actually makes it at least as clear as it would be when a person is telling you?
3: So there are, there are definitely some tools out there. Um, I have a couple of like quick read handouts that I'll like put in front of people in the exam room. Like this is what pain looks like in your cat. Um, there are also some, um, validated pain scoring scales, kind of like those little, If you ever sit in the emergency room or frankly, most doctor's offices will have that kind of like a pain scale about the smiley face to the sad face or the agony face. Um, Ours is not quite that delineated. We have like five different body postures for dogs or cats. Um, But this is a this was developed by uh, by uh, Colorado State University um, Veterinary School, along with um, some pain practitioners and anesthesiologists, pain specialists. Um, And there's an acute and chronic pain scale for dogs and an acute pain scale for cats. Now, those are useful tools, but almost always when I put them in front of someone and I know that their pet's in pain because I know what to look for, and they're like, oh, I think it's like a zero or a one, which is like mild to no pain. And I'm like, mm, it's a four. This is, clear. this is a four. And here's how, here's why. Um, so there is a lot of that that I have to do, um, but it's not easy. Uh, and frankly, I am sure that I miss it on a regular basis, even though this is what I do all day, every day, and pretty much all I think about. So it's hard. It's really hard. And I think it's really hard to, um, as you, as you mentioned, humans are not great at reporting their own history. Um, sometimes they're even worse at reporting their animal's history. Um, I can't tell you how many times I ask a yes and no question and I get a di- a dialogue that lasts five minutes. I'm like, wow. <laughs> oh, yes or no. <laughs> um, like, like what? Like what kind of question would that be? Um, how often do you feed your pet? That should be a pretty simple answer. Twice a day, three times a day. Well, on Tuesdays, he eats this at 9 a.m. And sometimes he'll have a snack at 2. No, it's 4 p.m. And it's just like, (sighs) okay, that's cool. Great. Got it. Um,
1: Often. So it's complicated. It's yes, no, or it's complicated.
3: (laughs) I I should add that third option because obviously black and white is very difficult for some people. Yeah. Um, And I don't actually expect it to be black and white. I'm perfectly willing to let there be gray, but (laughs) yeah. Yeah. So the reporting, report, reporting histories is always interesting. And when you train a new staff member to take a history from a pet owner, um, you get a hilarious number of questions that they either didn't get to ask or wouldn't have even thought about that I, that are second nature to me. And the more you do it, the better you get. And just like with people, who go to the doctor a lot, they get better at reporting their history. People whose pets are ill or what have you are much better at helping me see what's going on.
1: Yeah. Now, how do you deal with like, so one of the things that we have in caring for humans is this, the language has always been non-compliant and we're trying, I think, as a, as a profession to move away from that, because it implies that this person is willfully not taking your advice, but, What it means, of course, is that the medication isn't getting used properly or as often or it's not going the right place. And I imagine that you get a sense from some pet owners that like, oh, wow, this ointment is not going to get applied, is going to get applied to the butt instead of the ears, is going to like, and then they come back in and they're like, yeah, it didn't work. And you're like, hmm, like, what do
0: you do with that? We'll be right back. Do you want to change the world? So do we. Join Healwell this September in Arlington, Virginia, when we host the event to remember. There will be classes and conversations. There will be old friends and new ones. And yes, there will be dancing. Come to Healwell Homecoming and let's keep this ball rolling.
3: For it's a, experience. it's a, it's an, yeah, it's an, it's an art. Um, it yeah. definitely has taken me time. I've been in practice almost 10 years now and it's taken me time to learn to ask leading questions like, okay, so when we sent you home with this on Tuesday and you were going to do X, why didn't that happen? Um, in a way that is non-confrontational and non-judgmental I've even Now I actually just modify that and I I start by telling them about options even before I send something home or I I decide to treat something. I will talk to them about option A is to do this, it is less expensive, but you have to do more work. Or option B is this, it is more expensive, but you don't have to do as much work. And so I'll let people sort of make that choice or I'll say, how likely is it that you're going to be able to bathe your pet twice a week? And I expect an honest answer. Yeah. So when I don't get the honest answer is when I am frustrated because I'm like, well, we had the options. So now we just need to go since you didn't do it. And clearly it wasn't, it was too much and that's fine. Yeah. You know, and sometimes you don't know, then we have to try something different because you know, this needs to be applied to the ear and not the butt, you know, <laughs> we're not going to treat the ear by treating the butt. It's not how it works. Yeah. Now what about
1: when you're in the, I'm going to really, I'm going to really di- drill in here. So you say to this person, what's the likelihood that you can wash your pet twice a week and they say they say that they can in a way that's clear that they have no plans to do that like do you just wait and let that play out or do you say like for real like how do we increase the likelihood or like this is what happens if you don't wash your pet or you know
3: um, and this is where the skill of dealing with people, and I think um, my first career was in sales, and um, I was selling telecommunications services to IT professionals who are notoriously kind of, um, well, nerdy, first of all, which is something I respect greatly, um, but uh, also typically not terribly social. It's the stereotype, right? So here I am, this kind of gregarious, um, at 20 something, I was rather exuberant and obnoxious, I'm sure, but. Um, you know, like trying to pull them out of their shells. And so I got a lot of practice with like asking questions and trying to win people over to a way of thinking, but it also helps that I'm from the South. I mean, it's something that Southern women are trained to do from birth, Um, you know, be charming and be um, affable and uh, be, uh, you know, non-threatening. So I have definitely had a lifetime of training for that. And some of my colleagues are not as good at it <laughs> and they will definitely struggle with it. And that's part of what I love about the job is I actually like the people. I like talking to people every day. Um, and I think a lot of people who get into science with animals get really excited about the fact that they don't have to deal with people, which is yeah. totally not the case. hundred percent not. <laughs> <laughs> right. Wow. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the words non-compliant, just to b- go back to your question about language, is something we use a lot. Um, we don't ever use it in conversation with or written in the medical record mm-hmm. to the client um, because it, it, it does sound judgy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't make you want to then comply. And yeah, <laughs> right. No, it I mean, and we talk about like when you write this in the chart then the next provider to interact with this person, like you said, has this interpretation that, oh, this person is not going to get with the program and I need to, you know, get in there and assume, assume the worst almost. And that doesn't take anybody anywhere good.
3: No. And I have the luxury of having someone do intake for me. And so I am always uh, fascinated by the ways in which – the veterinary nurse or technician or assistant or whomever goes in talks to the client comes back to me with this filter of their own lens and their own judgment and then i'm like well we'll see and we go in and i'm like oh yeah they were they were not they were not confrontational they didn't they weren't trying to be unreliable they didn't understand your questions and so in the five minutes you came to give me a quick summary they had time to think about it i asked that question again i get a different answer yeah. And it makes my staff so mad. And I'm like, but but, guys, this is the whole point. Right. This is what you want. Yes. Uh, because now they're thinking critically about this stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You you loosened the jar lid so I can open it.
3: Exactly. Open exactly. For a team. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Precisely. I well, needed I, you to do
1: that. Right. It, right. Exactly. It would have gone much differently if I had cold called the way you did. So thanks right. for on that <laughs> for me. Right.
2: Totally. Well, as a massage therapist, you, you know, I see um, that is such an important point for all of us to be mindful of, because, again, I have had it pra- happen in practice many times over my 31 years, um, where you start asking questions and, you know, you have the person fill out their health history form, you go through it with them, and then they're lying on the table and, and you're working on them and you kind of undrape an area and it's like you see a scar where a pacemaker would be. <laughs> <clears throat> and the person has failed to disclose that information to me it's not that they were trying to withhold information it's that they had it put in 2 years ago and they've completely forgotten really you know it's not part of their day-to-day thoughts about oh yeah by the way i have a pacemaker you know so not to get miffed at, oh what what other information are you withholding from me what are you trying to keep from me you know uh-huh. type of attitude it just re- remember that sometimes people just kind of Oh, yeah, I I did. I was in a really bad car accident a long time ago. It's just sometimes (laughs) it takes them a while for that to sort of come to their consciousness.
3: I remember distinctly a moment uh, when I had someone on my table who was who who was complaining about neck pain. And in the middle of the massage, I was probably, I don't know, half an hour into it. Um, And she was like, oh, yeah, well, I had spinal fusion surgery. And I was like, oh, might have been nice to know that before we started okay, well, now I'm going to approach this a little differently. And I said, so I guess we're going to meet again and we're going to approach this differently next time because I couldn't believe it. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa." hold the phone. What? Yeah. Why didn't you tell me? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's just, I mean, people go, well, what would you have done differently? Well, I actually can't give you a list of how I would have done this differently, but the more information I have, the more informed what I do with you can be. So, but as you said, Kathy, like, you know, I mean, I feel like this is one of the great things about us being able to do in-home palliative care because you see how people live and you go, oh, this is a whole bunch of information I never would have (laughs) gotten and that my eyes and ears and,
3: and nose are taking in. Exactly. And I've talked to a couple of physicians who've been doing a lot of telemedicine in the last year um, as my clients, because we also do occasional telemedicine visits, which is a hilarious thing with pets. Because it's like, I mean, I'm really just talking to the person. They'll be like, here's my cat. And I'm like, great. That's your cat. (laughs) He's still alive. Like, (laughs) I mean, I can't, I can't assess him from here. Right at all. Um, But I've talked to some physicians who are like, you know, it's been really fascinating to be able to see inside people's homes and the things that people are willing to put on camera or not willing to put on camera, you know, that is very telling. And, um, especially mental health professionals, I think have found it very, very interesting. Um, but that said, uh, I, I I think there is some real value to house calls and, um, I don't do them on a routine basis. I was a horse vet for a very brief period of time. And the beauty of that is you get to go see where the horse lives. um, the downside is you get to go see where the horse lives every day. Uh, it's a very arduous journey. Take all your stuff with you. But you do get a lot of information that way. And I think it's really useful, um, especially I, I would say for palliative care for pets as well. I have a couple colleagues who do that and um, are very, they approach work very differently. Like one who's a, an ER doctor, and does palliative care and in-home euthanasia? And I was like, these two things are very different. How do you? Yeah. She said it fits. It fits her her mindset very well because she gets to kind of honor both halves of her yeah. interest in medicine.
1: Huh. Interesting. Well, and I'm sure there are ways that I mean, we think of what happens in the ED and what would happen in a palliative care setting is sort of antithetical. But I bet there's stuff from both that probably could, you know.
3: Oh sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And also just the, be, the ability to have very frank conversations about this is what end of life looks like. This is what, yeah. um, this is what, you know, here are the measures by which you decide when to euthanize, um, yeah. which is a conversation that's ongoing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it does require you be, I mean, people can't make good decisions if they don't have real information. And unfortunately in those situations, what's true is not often what people want to hear, but That's what being a writer is, is
3: being able to say those things. Yeah. Yeah. And as a baby doctor, I probably wasn't great at that. (laughs) I've gotten better at it over time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I don't think most of us probably are, are real good at that until we just do it wrong a whole bunch of times. Yep.
3: Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) You gotta screw it up. You gotta screw it up.
1: That's right. And then be willing to be like, Oh yeah, let's try not to do that again. Yeah. That was, I probably
3: should have recommended that a month ago.
1: Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Well that, I mean, that leads maybe to another question I have. I know last year, I can't remember the acronym, but there's a, there's a big vet organization, the American Veterinary Medicine, something, put out a report about the suicide rates uh, among, among veterinarians. And it was like almost three times more likely than sort of the general population. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they cite things like incredible debt and horrible hours and, you know, like what's the conversation within the veterinarian world and is there anything happening in the profession to stem the tide of this burnout and this sort of sense of overwhelm that leads to considering suicide and even completing suicide?
3: Um, yeah. I mean, like most things, it's a multifactorial problem. Um, yeah. uh, y- yes. The AVMA report that you're talking about that did say, that, you know, guess what? We have an epidemic. Um, It's something that I've probably been keenly aware of for longer than I care to really imagine. But um, the year before I graduated, I had just started during your third slash fourth year, you do a clinical year. So you're just doing rotations in the hospital, which can mean days that are eight hours long or days that are 16 hours long. And you're you're doing these rotations you're immersed in these departments and trying to learn everything you can while you're there in that short window um it was right before graduation and one of our professors committed suicide and um not my graduation the graduation the class above me and um i think it was the day before oh. it, was, it was really devastating to the whole campus because she was really beloved and um an amazing person and um in, in a very New Englandy kind of way, which was awesome. <laughs> I went to that school at Tufts and uh, just outside of Boston. And um, she was really kind of uh, an institution there. She had gone to school there and done her residency there and was a professor there and so on. Um, it was devastating. And um, a year after I graduated another sort of really well-known um I, I thought leader, innovator in the industry. Her name was Sophia Yin. She was a veterinary behaviorist. <clears throat> Pardon me. She was one of the people who was the initial development behind low stress handling for dogs and cats. Oh, wow. in, in, in the old days, we just uh, restrained them. It's just sheer manpower. Yeah. You just hold them down, and you got to do whatever you got to do. And that's just yeah. it's cowboy medicine. And um, you know, there is a certain amount of that that, of course, is by necessity. But hey, do we have to do it for every pet? No, it it totally breaks the bond of trust that they that they have in humans, and especially in me as the caregiver. Um, so anyway, she was a real innovator, and out of the blue, uh, seemingly um, it was out of the blue to me. I'd probably been in practice maybe a year um, when she committed suicide. I was devastated. I read her book every single day. She also uh, she also wrote something called the Veterinary Nerd Book, which is like everything you need for that first year of practice, like mine has got so many bookmarks in it. it is ridiculous. And I still occasionally refer to it. The veterinary nerd book was written by Sophia Yen. It came from her notes that she created when she was a student. And, you know, these people are so valuable. And how could we not see their pain and how could we not see what was happening with them? Um, the answer is that, we as veterinarians uh, are overachievers and are um, have to be in order to get into school and are used to succeeding. And when we don't succeed, failure feels like it's very personal. Shame. Um, yeah, it's, oh, it's, it's, it's devastating. I thankfully had an opportunity to really face failure much earlier in life and, uh, and really come to terms with it. So it was, it was, <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually now I can learn from failure and still, it still stings, but I don't see it as an personal affront to my own being. Yeah. And I think a lot of people who haven't had, have, haven't ever failed. You know, I, I, i practically brag about the fact that I graduated in the bottom third of my vet school class. I don't care. <laughs> like <laughs> right. it, it doesn't, it didn't matter. I, I, I finished, I graduated. I'm now a doctor and I get to do what I love. Yeah. Um, but people who aren't like that, who haven't ever not gotten exactly what they worked for, um, don't take failure. Well, yeah. Um, add to that the pressures of social media, the pressures of um, online reviews, the fact that a lot of us, like I said, are kind of socially awkward. We're, we're weird. We're, we're the weird kids in the room. Um, and again, I'm kind of accustomed to that. Um, so there's a lot of misunderstanding of frustration, the long hours the crippling debt. I mean, Hundreds of thousands of dollars. I have a classmate who I remember at the end of our fourth year said, "I'm graduating with four hundred and fifty thousand dollars in debt," and I was like, "Wow, wow, that's combined undergrad and vet school." Yeah, and I was like, "How do you ever pay that off?" How, I mean, that, that's a mortgage. Like, how do you how do you ever buy a home?
1: Yeah, how do you? Yeah, how do you ever like have a restful night of sleep?
2: Uh, Well, and sadly for a lot of people, I mean, that's not the exception. It's far too common. Um, I know of a young woman right now, you know, preparing to go through med school and that's what she will come out of school with is a $400,000 debt load. Yeah. That's how you, that's that's, how you start your career.
3: Right. In the hole, in the hole. Um, hole. And then you, and then you add to that that veterinarians on average make about a third of what physicians do at the same level of training. And, um, and we're underpaid, of course, because now it's a mostly female profession. So, you know, it, it, the list goes on and on. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, well, it's do devastating.
1: You, do you notice, um, and uh, this 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 will be your armchair psychiatry moment, um, I feel like one of the things that we see in caregivers for humans is, because we've been working with people as, as massage therapists and nurses and other people sort of like, consider what we just went through and not that, I mean, for frontline providers, COVID is far from over, but there's this idea that look, what's happening to humans. That's so horrible, but sort of not including yourself in the picture of like, when you see that a a, a renowned veterinarian has committed suicide or, or a veterinarian down the street, I, I wonder if there's the same sort of sense of like, who dodged the bullet. Okay. Back to work. Like there's not a pause and reset and like wow how did that happen and how do we get better at noticing the signs and can we make the cultural shifts that are necessary to make
3: this a less likely outcome? Great questions. Um, I mean, there've been a number of, of initiatives that have been started. Um, Not one more veterinarian, N O M V. uh, Not one more vet uh, is a, started out as a Facebook group, I think. Um, And now it's a national nonprofit organization. That is about suicide prevention in the profession, um, and uh, you know I think the the key thing is is that is the visibility and that people are talking about it after the AVMA published that study and um, and I just started to also just be more open with our clients who would ask how are you <laughs> you know I'd say hey how are you I'm fine how are you. <laughs> um, uh, I, I I would start to answer that question more honestly. You know what? We're all exhausted. We have been here every day for you know six days a week mm-hmm. or twelve hours a day, and we are pooped. We yeah. can't get in, we cannot get our clients in to be seen for their sick patient problems that need yeah. to be seen now because there is just there are not enough hours in the day. Yeah. And after I just realized that if I'm just more honest about the answer to that question, it makes a huge difference. And we started to get thank yous, and uh, we're so glad you're here. And um, I even had a client say, "I hope it gets better for you soon, that you can get some relief." And I was like, "Oh, thank you, me too, <laughs> me too." <laughs> <laughs> right. um, and it, it has a bit, um, but that's mostly because I work with a management team who is so committed to making sure that we are all getting what we need to be able to do our jobs well. And that is not the norm in this industry. It is very common for veterinary hospital administrators and owners of practices even to just be like suck it up and deal I had to um but I hope that that's changing I think it is I hope it is um I personally am taking a step back I'm going from four days a week down to three days a week starting September 1st because I needed to I haven't done any exercise in like eight months yeah yeah that's not healthy that's not um working seven hours a day on my day off not a good idea. No. So these, are, yeah. So they're they're. It's about figuring out how to balance that, and that, I mean that's my lifelong challenge. But
1: yeah. Well, that I mean that's Oliver's, and I feel like I swear we did not pay Emily to say any of those things. Um, but this is <laughs> this is something that seems to come up in every episode with every type of provider. Is this idea that if we're honest about what's hard, it is lighter, and it also allows everyone around us to feel like, Oh, like my heart is not something to be ashamed of. Like everyone is having a hard time, no matter where you are, or what you're doing. And we have to stop pretending that's not true.
3: Right. Yeah. yeah. I don't know why we have, why we have this culture of like, everything's fine. This is fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> you know, the dog with the dumpster fire. It's like, obviously it's not fine. Right. Why do we have to lie about it? It's bizarre. Um, I blame my, uh, Anglo uh you know kind of stiff upper lip um suck it up and deal kind of uh cultural norms of a my family but also just the the nature of that sort of yeah you're everything is fine keep calm and carry on as if that's noble right right right. (laughs) I need to fall apart today is that okay yeah
1: I need to be allowed to do that
3: yeah yeah
1: now how do you see um the other thing that is wrecking healthcare for humans is capitalism. Um, and how the does that hell,
2: the hellscape of capitalism?
1: The hellscape of capitalism. Um, how do I mean, certainly as a person who has had many, many pets and spent much, much dollars on surgeries and medications and all the things that are now available. Um, how do you see that affect you and the kind of care you can provide and sort of issues of, I mean, I do feel like we need to talk about like access and equity for pet care as well, because our pets are part of our own personal health care and taking good care of our pets is part of taking care of ourselves. So it it doesn't feel so far downstream to consider if I can't afford good care for my pet, that maximizes my stress and then my pet gets sick. And then if my pet dies and my stress goes through the roof, like, I mean, if you could, if you could pick like one or two things that you would make less about capitalism that might improve care is there anything that sort of jumps out at you
3: i mean the th- <laughs> i forward. mean more uh, I, could you ask me a larger question yeah yeah. Well, I was, i'm really not really feel like i'm getting the overheads really here it's really the, um i mean okay so yes there are challenges absolutely um the thing that impresses me is when i say to people during their new puppy visit we really recommend that you get pet insurance because x and you know the the numbers the the the, the reasons are many but mostly it's that you don't know what you don't know about pet health care until you're in the middle of it and it's 3 a.m and you're in the emergency room and they hand you an estimate for five thousand dollars to save your dog's life if you aren't prepared for that, your, your stress is absolutely going to go through the roof. And I don't want to stand here and tell you that this is where you're headed, but it very could very likely could be. And yeah. no one knows that. So right. don't be stupid about it. And I even had a client who came to me and said, oh, yeah, I've already got pet insurance. And I was like, well, good. You know, she's like, I also have a credit card that I've reserved for that. I've been saving for this for a couple of years. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. What? <laughs> um. <laughs> Because no one seems to do that, which mm-hmm. is amazing to me. It, I don't have children, but I, I can imagine that they're expensive. and uh, I've certainly seen it in my own family, my sisters and so on. And yeah, I mean y- you know you know that these things cost money. Um, so I'm more surprised by the people who pay four grand for a puppy that they bought from some Craigslist breeder and then come to me and are amazed at that. It's going to cost $400 to vaccinate their dog over the next three months. Right. And I'm like, that's, huh. that's a really small amount of money to pay for right. the puppy. You just purchased for $4,000 that you proudly told me you spent $4,000 on and then you're going to go right. about 400 bucks. <laughs> you need a little priority so, to, perhaps. Yeah. That's a little challenging for me. That's yeah. those are the moments when I steam comes out my ears, but um right. Yeah. But yes, does there need to be more equity? Yes. Um, is there a healthcare spectrum in which uh, some pets get better care because they can afford it? A hundred percent. Yeah. Pet insurance, I believe, could be a great equalizer of that. It is a wild west right now, though. There are so few regulations. There are no standards about what is minimal coverage, what is what is required by law. You know, I, It's very similar to automobile insurance in that you have to do the things, you have to go above and beyond to figure out what's going to happen if you get in an accident, like you have to, you got to make file the claim and you got to do the thing and you got to find the mechanic or the, whatever it's the same with pet yeah. insurance. But, um, but at least in California, there are, you know, you have to have X coverage uh, for, you know, so many dollars and that's the minimum the state mandated minimum. And there's no such thing as that for vet care. So it's people don't know what they're getting into sometimes, but I feel like some is better than none. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Humans. Yeah. So
3: that's my, uh, my corner of the, of the realm about, uh, about cost of care. And, um, but if you want to talk about uh, capitalism, I mean, the corporatizing of veterinary medicine is very real. Yeah. There are some good things about it and there are some less good things. The good things about it are usually for the staff and the, and the people who are employed. Um, The bad things about it are usually for the consumer. Yeah. Prices do tend to go
1: up. They do. Yeah. And it really, it does become like, oh, well, how sick are you, you know, to your pet? You're like, um, do we need to go? Or can I like, you know, buy this, whatever. I mean, you just hear people making these kinds of decisions because like you said, you don't, you don't imagine, which I don't understand why most people don't imagine, but that like this pet is going to, is definitely going to get sick and like stuff is going to happen. You can't predict and, and Yeah, I don't know. I think most of the people that I know, their pets are like their children. And yeah, $5,000 is a lot to pay for, you know, your cat just ate a squeaky toy that now has to be surgically removed from its intestines or it will die. But you're not going to let your cat die because it ate a squeaky toy. But you are going to go into crazy debt to have that taken care of if you didn't prepare. And how do we prepare? And then how do we go down the stream and go this really cost $5,000? And where's that money going? And all the questions that lead to the fee that we finally pay as a consumer.
3: I also think that there is a piece of this that is very much about the fact that our industry is discounted on the whole. I mean, compared to human medicine, the things that we do, I mean, frankly, just the number of things that we recycle and reuse that are single use is is absurd. Because I'm always shocked. I'm like, throw this away in a human hospital? Why would you throw away a pair of suture scissors? They're perfectly good. You can use them again. Yeah. Dumb. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I can't tell you how often we have people who work in human hospitals are like, Oh yeah, that's a disposal. I'm like, I'll take those. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So, but we, we definitely charge less for our services than they are most likely worth um, mm. and have for eons. Um, yeah, Part of that probably comes from the, you know, kind of James Harriet sole practitioner working in a rural area, you know, they service the, the pigs and the horses and the cows and the dog oh, and the cat and whatever. Great and small. Yeah, totally. Right. That doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. But um, we also don't live in an agrarian society anymore. And so we aren't, I'm not integrally, you know, kind of invested in the, in the health of the economy in my local area in the way that I would be if I was talking to the farmer every day. Yeah. So yeah. Um, there's, there's a lot to it. I don't, I'm not definitely, this is not an area of expertise of mine. I'm just talking it's out
0: excellent. of my own
3: head. Excellent. But um, <laughs> the the key thing for me is that there is a breaking point. I don't know where it is, um, but I think that in, in the future, we will probably make uh, pet insurance will probably healthcare, pet health insurance will become more of a commonplace thing and a standard and they will start to most likely like they do in human medicine dictate the route of care and how much care and who gets what care. And, um, I, I think it's inevitable. Yeah. I just hope it happens after I'm retired. <laughs> That's Cause, Cause it's just, I mean, I, I got, I have family members who are physicians and I, I don't I take all the fun out of doctoring. Right. It yeah. seems like it does. Yeah, I love that. I get to solve problems creatively. And I don't have I don't have somebody watching me on. But that's not in the book.
1: Right. You got to try this thing first, that probably isn't going to work. And then when you show me it didn't work, then you can have money for this other thing. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's yes, a- you have
2: to you have to do the x ray first and the CT scan, then the MRI, as is the case here, you can't just go to the MRI. You right. save a lot of money in the interim, even though you suspect that it's something that's not going to come up on an x-ray. Oh, well, we we'll still have to do that first. Yeah. But how can yeah, we I, 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 I
3: get the cop out that um, uh, my patients have to be anesthetized for CT and MRI. So um, it's usually isn't done anyway. Yeah. Right. Cause it's too expensive, but yeah.
1: It's weird. Man, Caring for living beings is a complicated business. Oof. Yeah.
3: And the fact that it's a business at all is the complicated part too. Yeah. It's how I make my living. So
1: yeah. There is no easy answer. No, definitely not. There's going to be, there has to be some serious culture blowing up across the board (laughs) to to reset all this. (laughs) We're setting the depth charges presently. So stay tuned. Great. Yeah. Great.
2: You know, I think a part of this is that we've gotten to a place in our evolution. I use that word lightly um, (laughs) of dispensability. Oh, that cat has a squeaky toy in its stomach. Oh, just off that one and I'll get another one. Yeah. You know, or, you know, and and we see this with with human beings, sadly, as well. Oh, well, you're dispensable. We'll just get rid of you and hire, you know, another person. Yeah. You know, and the whole, you know, um, immediacy thing as well of people just picking up their cell phone and so quickly, you know, texting someone on a whim. I mean, I'm reminding myself of that daily. We're in the process of building a new home and I had a conversation with our builder yesterday and I said, I'm trying very hard to not be that person to text you at eight o'clock at night because I had a thought in my head. You know, I'm trying to keep my commentary or my questions for you within your normal business working hours yeah you know because it came up because he was asking us if we were going to have a landline in our home or were we strictly cell phone and i said well i currently have a, a landline as my business number because i don't want people texting me at weird hours
1: yeah <laughs> Smart.
2: so then that's what i said to him so i'm doing my best to not do that to you you know and he laughed and he said well he said, it happens all the time. I said, yes, but I don't want to be that person. I'm not going
1: to add myself to that list.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. For sure. I'm going to reel it in big time.
2: So well, just being any- kinder and having some yes. sense of, you know, respect for each other, you know, and our veterinarian is a person too. And certainly yeah. when when I we think that our dog may need some assistance, we're, we're going to seek that assistance, but have some respect for, for that person as a human being and be mindful that, you know, oh, they're just a vet and I should be able to, you know, right now, you know, I mean, of course if it's an emergency, it's an emergency, but, you know.
1: But, yeah, we're
3: not good at at knowing when a thing is actually an emergency. (laughs) (laughs) No. I remember asking a question when I was working in hospitals before, in vet hospitals before I went to vet school and saying, well, I, you want me to triage it? How am I supposed to know what's urgent and what's not urgent? And I was like, oh, I guess that comes with training. You yeah. don't know. No. And it's, hard to t- it's really hard to teach that. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, and if we don't push back on each other, I mean, if you if you text me at eight about something that's not really an emergency and I quickly get back to you, I've just confirmed that A, it's okay to invade and B, you're right. This does need to be addressed immediately.
2: <laughs> and, you, know. you have just rewarded that behavior. <laughs>
3: Totally, yes. yes. It's a very good point. Oh, no dopamine! What we,
2: what we try to be aware of with our dog. I'm not going to reward that behavior. That's right.
3: <laughs> totally right.
2: Yeah, exactly. Pay what train you train like.
3: Ignore what you don't like.
2: That's right.
3: <laughs> oh man,
1: <laughs> maybe that's going to be the title of this episode. I think that might be.
2: It. Don't um, reward that behavior. Yeah, that's right.
1: Um. So, any any last words of wisdom that we didn't uh, we didn't get to, Emily, that you want to share with our listeners?
3: Um, no, I don't think. I mean, I think the the weird thing that some people, when they find out that I was a massage therapist, they'll say you were, and I'm, they're like, I can't picture that. I'm like, it was more about me than it was about the thing. I learned so much about myself doing that work, and I use those skills every day because touch is so important to animals and how you touch them and where and with what pressure and all of that stuff is those are skills I learned as a massage therapist and um it matters and I wish that there were more people who were who understood that um I have to remind new people like so don't hold them that way it is a stress position for them and here's how and why and like um those are things you have to teach so um, yeah, all of that matters. And those are really important skills. So, um, again, you all are doing insanely important work and, um, I'm just happy to be here. Hey,
1: well, we're so happy that you have been here and that you're out there, um, being kind to people and their pets. So try yeah. don't piss me off. <laughs> we well, know it's not easy. <laughs> mm. <laughs> this has been another episode of Interdisciplinary. Thanks for being with us, Kathy. Of course, thanks for uh, bringing your perspective and, uh, Canadian-ness.
2: Hey, my pleasure. And just one quick note as we conclude here, please massage your pets.
1: Please massage your pets.
2: Amen. He's so nice.
1: Pets. Yeah. Exactly. And tell your pets to listen to the show because I think it's really going to enrich their lives. And, uh, Yeah, leave us a review. Get one of our cool prizes. Stick with us through season four. We got a lot more stuff to make you think and feel uncomfortable about. Hear you next time.
2: Interdisciplinary is produced by Healwell. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. New episodes are available weekly through your favorite podcast outlet. Uh, And you can... Send us an email at podcast at HealWell.org. That's podcast at HealWell.org. Thanks for listening.
0: If you enjoy Interdisciplinary, you should check out HealWell's new show, The Rub a podcast about massage therapy. You can click the link in the show notes or find The Rub wherever you listen to podcasts. See you there.